Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be in worship with you. I'm glad that you've chosen to join us this morning. If you're new or visiting with us, I hope you'll stick around for a few moments. I'd love to meet you afterwards and introduce you around to some other people here at InTown. We are going through a study of the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we're coming towards the end of it, or at least a a pause until uh, the Easter season, the Lenten season. But this morning, we're looking at Luke 22, 24 through 34. You can follow along in the bulletin with me as I read. A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, but I among you as the one who serves? You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel." Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's said that America is a culture of fame junkies, that we're fixated on achieving fame and so interested in those who have it. We're drawn almost simultaneously to the feel-good story of a great achiever who doesn't take credit for his achievements, while at the same time infatuated with the reality star who's achieving fame by being intolerably self-important. Last year, Leroy Petrie, who was a U.S. Army Ranger, became only the second living soldier since the Vietnam War to win the Medal of Honor. He saved two lives by lunging onto a grenade, which then explodes in his hand. And what does he say? Even more fascinating. It's not courage. It was love. I looked at the two men next to me that day, and they were no different than my own children and my own wife. I did what anyone would have done. But aren't we infatuated with those who also are differently sing their own praises? Muhammad Ali captivates us with his I'm the greatest speech. It is said of him that one time before the takeoff, a flight attendant reminded Ali to fasten his seatbelt, and he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she quickly responded, Well, Superman don't need no airplane either. He claimed to be the greatest, and we loved it. This last summer in the Olympics, someone else claimed to be the greatest, Usain Bolt. He captivated us. He says, I'm now a legend, the greatest athlete to ever live. Jason Gay is a commentator for the Wall Street Journal on sports. He says, the most satisfying art of Bolt, even more than his brilliant runs, is how much he demolishes the myth that the world wants humble athletes. For all our belief in humility, there's no visual in sports quite as satisfying as the called shot, the athlete who says he or she will go out 
and do it and then does it. There's no denying the thrill of a boast delivered. We're told in this passage that in the upper room, at the Lord's Supper, that a dispute breaks out among, the, among Jesus' disciples about who is the greatest. In the shadow of Jesus' death, in the shadow of him going to the cross, they're disputing who's going to be the top dog. It's hardly believable. But would we have been any different? We see two fault lines of character in Jesus' disciples, and then one confounding response from Jesus. We see selfish ambition, a naive overconfidence, and then a confounding forgiveness of failures. Let's pray before we look at each of those. Father, we come here this morning from many different places with many different expectations, with many different purposes for being here. But what we hold in common is that we have a driving ambition for self. Father, we pray that it is, you would remind us that it is not the greatest, it is not the achiever, it is not the one who has it all together, who can lay claim to your salvation, but it is the least. It is the fallen, it is the broken. But this is so very hard for us to admit because our love of self blocks us at every turn. Lord, let us not try to hide any longer from that, but see that confessing it, confessing our weaknesses, confessing our inability is the very way in. I pray that this passage would help us to see that as we continue to worship. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So first of all, selfish ambition. We see, first of all, that our personal ambition can blind us to what's really going on around us. The setting, as we saw last week, is a Passover meal. And at the Passover, you would be seated around three tables that were set in the shape of a U, with the main host, the most important person, that is Jesus, seated in the middle. And then to the right of the host, to the right of the most important person in the room, would be the second most important. And then to the left would be the next, and so forth, around the table. We're told elsewhere in Scripture that it's John that is reclining against Jesus, and so perhaps he's the one in the right, and the disciples are wondering, well, what does that mean for me? If he's on the right, where do I place? And they're jockeying for position. What we need to do as we read these narratives from Scripture is remember that they're not there just for posterity. They're not there just so that we can have a history, a record of what happened, but so that we can place ourselves into the story and let it critique us. And it's possible, in fact, it's probably, it's probable that we would like to seat ourselves, that we would like to envision ourselves at sort of the very end of the table and we're very content to be there We're just happy to be included because after all, there's only 12 people in the whole world that have been invited to this table. And so we're perfectly fine to sit on the end. In fact, we consider ourselves privileged or we see ourselves involved and invested deeply in this very dispute. It's hard to see ourselves in the latter position. In fact, that's where Luke wants us to see ourselves, but it's hard because Jesus deals ruthlessly with those people that are disputing. He tells them they're acting in a way that's completely foreign to everything that he taught them. In verse 25, as we read, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. 
Now, Gentile is a shorthand way of talking about all of the people out there, the people that don't understand the gospel, the pagan people out there. And they exercise authority in a way to serve their own interests while patting themselves on the back for being so generous. Not so with you, disciples, he says. It's exactly the opposite in my kingdom. You are not to live like that. Instead, it's exactly backwards. The greatest among you should be like the youngest, the one who rules, like the one who serves. Interesting, though, he doesn't condemn ambition. He doesn't condemn aspiration of all sorts. He instead redefines what ambition should be pointed towards, what our aspiration should be directed towards. Who's the greatest one at the table? When you go to a restaurant, you want the server to make you feel like the center of the universe. You want to be the greatest person in that person's mind. We've created a social contract that when you go to the table, you're going to be waited on. And that person needs to treat you like there's no other person in the room or you get upset with them. That's the social contract is that you want to be served as the greatest But Jesus turns that upside down in a table setting. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? That is, is it not him at the very center of the table, the host, the greatest? But I am among you as the one who serves. You see, the one who is the greatest, not just in that table setting, but the greatest, Jesus, the Son of God, The one who has the right to demand service and and submission instead serves and submits. Now, maybe you and I aren't so garish as to talk this way out loud, that we're not going to debate our greatness with other people present. But how much of our internal monologue does that very thing? How much energy do we spend with ourselves debating how we fit in, how we're positioned against other people? Are we great? Have we achieved what we want to achieve? What do people think of me? And what about those people that we lead or influence? Do they find themselves caught up in that debate in some way? Church leaders, parents, spouses, teachers, mentors, In the settings where you have authority, do those under you feel like a surrogate to your personal ambition, or do they feel like the object, the center of your attention, the center of your great care and service? Verses 29 and 30, we see Jesus claiming to be the true king. He's the Lord of glory because he's the son of God, and yet he stoops at another point in the story to wash the disciples' feet, the most menial position of servitude. The king of glory takes that up and says, I will wash your feet rather than expect you to wash my feet. He waits on them at a table. He gives up his rights to glory and acclaim, and he goes to a cross. If the people that you lead formally or informally don't feel this from you, then maybe, friend, it's because you've never felt it from Jesus. Maybe you've never truly understood or been willing to receive the humble service of Jesus. In 1997, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon sort of made their career with this screenplay that they wrote and starred in, Goodwill Hunting. 
And in the movie, Sean is an underachieving therapist played by Robin Williams. And Will, played by Matt Damon, is this incredibly brilliant but incredibly cocky and terribly angry young man. And he comes to Sean for help, or actually he's made to come to Sean for help. And one day in Sean's office, Will comes in and Sean is holding a manila folder that contains Will's history as far as the state of Massachusetts is concerned. And it details him being abandoned by his parents. It details him navigating through the foster care system and being savagely beaten by his father. And Sean holds up the folder and says, Will, you see this? All of this is crap. Now, he doesn't say that, but this is church after all. Will, all of this is crap. And then he says, Will, it's not your fault. I know, I know. No, it's not your fault. I know, I know that. No, listen to me, son. It's not your fault. I know that. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Don't mess with me, Sean, not you. It's not your fault. And Will falls apart sobbing for the first time. We see through that false self, that tough veneer, that thing that has kept him hidden for so long. He lets Sean in, the first person ever, and he falls apart weeping. Maybe one of the reasons that we constantly debate our importance in our own heads, that we project toughness to hide tremendous insecurity is that we've never had someone who sees our weakness and doesn't exploit us. We've never had someone who's able to peer into the places that we want so desperately to hide and then seeing that, seeing us, doesn't abandon us. One who loves us for who we are rather than who we pretend to be. Maybe it's because we never heard Jesus say over and over until we get it, you're not okay, but that's okay. You're not the greatest, but you delight me. Here's the file that contains all your failure and sin. Let's burn it together. There's a selfish ambition in these disciples' lives, though being with Jesus for a few years that doesn't allow them to grasp what Jesus has done on their behalf. There's a selfish ambition and there's a naive self-confidence. Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Perhaps Peter was assumed to be the leader by the other disciples, and Luke's second letter, Acts, sort of bears that out, that, Luke, that Peter becomes the primary leader of the early church. But we also see that there are fault lines in his life. Simon is his original name. Peter had been the name given to him by Jesus. It's mean, it means rock. Now, a rock may look impenetrable. You may pick it up and you bang on it, you try to break it, you scratch it, nothing happens. It's a rock. It's very hard. But if you strike it just right, any rock will split in two, maybe into a million pieces, because there are hidden 
but significant fault lines that are embedded into that rock from its very formation. The fault lines in the earth's crust get embedded in the rocks that come out of that crust, and they have fault lines. And no matter how hard it seems on the outside, if you hit it hard enough, the rock will crumble. A rock, your character, your marriage, your friendships may look very solid, very hard, very impenetrable on the outside, but if it's hit in the right way, they'll break. The disciples are gathered around the room, and Jesus tells them that he's about to give himself for them, and he gives them the Lord's Supper, and he looks around the room, and he sees the fault lines. He sees that his trial and crucifixion are going to land on those fault lines in such a way that their hard exterior, particularly Peter's, is going to be cracked and broken in two. When our ambitions lie in self-promotion, when we are naively self-confident, then failure, hardship, persecution will always exploit those fault lines. Satan has asked to sift you, Peter, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Notice the sequence. You're gonna fail. When you do, strengthen other people. It's a promise of future grace. Jesus is saying, I see right through that hard exterior. I know that you're going to fail, and I love you anyway. I'm going to restore you. Now, what does Peter do with that promise of future grace? It's what you and I often do. Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus, you've got the wrong guy. I'm the rock. I'm going to go with you to prison and death. And Luke is telling us that here in Jesus' target, in what Jesus sees, is a man without integrity who doesn't even know it. In the upper room, Peter is very confident. At the Lord's table with Jesus, Peter is very ambitious. But when he leaves, when he becomes accused of being a follower of Jesus, right after Jesus is arrested, he crumbles. He acts differently. The hammer blows of persecution fall on him and exploit the cracks that are present in his character and his interior life and the way that he's appropriated Jesus in improper way, and he crumbles to pieces. You see, the dispute of who's greatest in the kingdom or who will be greatest in the kingdom has now come full circle, and we see what happens with those who dispute, those who think about their lives in the kingdom in that way. Will I be the greatest? Then he crumbles. Will I be the leader? Will I get acclaim? Will I get recognized? Trial, hardship, persecution falls to pieces. We see a naive overconfidence. But then finally, we see Jesus give a confounding forgiveness of failures. Jesus goes, as we didn't read, to the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes to pray, and he says it's because his soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. And where does he find Peter? Asleep. Peter's napping. Jesus is praying. Jesus is bleeding what looked to be like blood, or sweating what looked to be like blood. And where is Peter? Asleep. He's arrested And what does the future leader of the church do? Denies him. 
denies him three times. When you turn back, I will pray for you. Is that what he says? No. No, I have prayed for you, and you will turn back. When you turn around, when you strengthen the church, when you become the leader I want you to be, then I will accept you. No. I know you will fail, and I don't reject you. I know you're going to deny me, but I won't deny you. I know that you're going to abandon me, but I won't abandon you. I will give you a promise of future grace that in that moment, I will be there. One of my favorite radio shows is This American Life, and one episode not too long ago focused on a young girl named Sarah who was sharing her family's very public fall from grace. She'd grown up in a privileged family. She had all of the nice clothes. She had an enormous home. She went to expensive schools. She had country club memberships. Both her mom and her dad drove a Porsche. But despite the outward signs of success, her home life was marked by a constant pressure to keep up the family image. And Sarah says in the interview, rules were very important. Etiquette, very important. My dad's insane temper could be set off by the slightest offense. And when I heard the Porsche rumble up the driveway every day when he came home, I would run into my room and hide because maybe today would be the day he found the candy wrapper in the sofa cushion. It was all about avoiding shaking the beehive. But that image, that family image that they worked so hard to maintain came to a screeching halt one night. And Sarah, in this interview, describes the day when her parents called a family meeting to tell the children that their father had failed in some massive way, that he had done something wrong and was going to have to pay for it. Much of the money that they spent in this lavish lifestyle, it turned out, had been embezzled from a trust fund from one of his disabled clients. His father wept on the couch as he confessed his wrongdoing to his children and said, we're going to have to start over. We're going to have to rebuild our lives. His father was disbarred from practicing law, and they had to sell their beautiful home and cars. All their friends disowned them. Sarah's mother had to go back to work, changing sheets at a nursing home and serving as a janitor at their church. And yet in the midst of this death of security and wealth and achievement and identity, she says a beautiful new way of life was formed in their family. She says, my dad instantly became better. He was happy and wasn't such a jerk all the time. And my mom, her transformation was amazing. She packed bag lunches for some homeless people who lived under a bridge. She went to Rwanda during the genocide. And she even let a homeless guy named Earl live with us. He was a fugitive. We figured that out later. But who are we to judge? I mean, really, who are we to judge? Failure, it turns out, was this family's gateway to freedom. And it's the only way into Christianity. It's the only way to see grace. For Jesus is the one who lays out a table for failures. Jesus is the one who loves the wounded and the weak. Jesus is the one who builds his kingdom around the fallen. You can only get to Jesus as a moral failure. Verse 37, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. 
don't you understand, Peter? You're not saved by me as an example, but as a substitute. You're not saved by me just by following what I do. You're saved because I go and die the death that you should have died. I go and die the death of a moral outcast. That's what Jesus is saying. He's numbered among the transgressors. The one who never sinned is labeled as a sinner and hauled up on a cross and crucified. You're not saved by me, Peter, as an example, but as a substitute. You're not saved by following me, but by trusting in me. He dies the death of a transgressor as a moral outcast, so that moral outcasts like you and like me can find our way in. Let's reckon with that as we continue to worship. Let's pray. Father, it's not easy to consider ourselves exactly the opposite of what we often claim to be, what we pretend to be, that is moral failures. It's hard to see this as the gateway to you, to see this as the pathway to freedom, to admit our wrongdoing, to admit all the ways, all the things that we try to hide from everyone else, that we offer them up to you and say, please, would you take them away once and for all? Lord, this is difficult, and I pray that you would give us courage. I pray that you would give us courage to come first to you, to open ourselves up to your gaze, knowing that you will never abandon us, and then also to open ourselves up to our brothers and sisters here and outside these walls in a way that says that we're not okay, but that that's okay. I pray that you would help us get comfortable in saying that and that we would see Jesus over and over stepping into our place in our stead and taking on our sin and shame as if it were his own. We pray in his name. Amen.